make it known throughout the, all of the world and through our community that salvation has come to this place, that salvation has come to our hearts. Okay, I'm going to preach a message that we did not intend, so I'm going to stop right there. This morning, we are continuing on with James. We are finishing chapter 2, so if you want to go ahead and flip to chapter 2, we're going to be in 14 through 26. I was talking with a friend this week, um, and he was asking me what we were doing a sermon series on, and we were talking about James, and he goes, oh, (laughs) okay then. Um, And I said, yeah, I said, the hard part about James, um, or maybe the uncomfortable part about James, I should say, is that James pulls no punches. James, and we've talked about this, James pulls no punches, and so I as a pastor cannot pull any punches. Um, that because this is the Word of God and this is what the Word of God says, then that must be what I share with you. Um, And so this morning is no different. This is a difficult passage, um, both to understand in light of some of what the rest of the New Testament says. This is a difficult passage because of how it speaks to us as believers and as unbelievers. Um, And so this morning, um, if you were like me this week, I believe that this word is going gonna, is gonna to throw a punch like some of the rest have. Um, and so in light of that, um, I did want to share with you something very quickly. Um, there are pastors um, who put on a, a mask of sorts, um, and they do it many times for what they t- believe to be right intentions. But they put on a mask of sorts where they never show uh, conviction. They never talk about how the Word of God is transforming their heart. And they do that for some good reasons, they, in their mind at least. Um, they do that because they want to set an example and they believe that that somehow will get in the way if they show vulnerability. Um, if they show that they are struggling with something, that that will show vulnerability to a congregation and screw up that. Um, they do it out of guilt. They don't, wanna, they don't want the embarrassment or the shame Um, or they do it out of some sense of not wanting to be vulnerable because churches can be mean, believe it or not. Um, And uh, we're very thankful, Melissa and I are, that we're here um, and because you guys continue to show us such grace and such love and such generosity. Um, But there are a lot of guys that that don't have that ability or don't don't see that as important. But I want you to know this week, um, God, God dropped me on my knees more than once this week in preparing this lesson. And he began to call in my heart um, some motives behind some of the things that I think, behind some of the things that I do, um, and how I choose to go about certain things. Um, and he began continued to deal with me in that. And so as we go through this passage today, I want you to understand as a people that I find, A, no joy in throwing punches this morning because that's, and I find no joy in being harsh. Um, and so if it comes across that way, please please don't take it that way. Take it out of a concern and a love for the church um, and addressing what the Word of God says. But also understand that I am in the trenches with you. That before the cross, we are all on level footing, as we talked about last week. And that I'm struggling with some of the same things that you may be struggling with. Um, and that I'm praying for you. And I hope that you're praying for me um, as we walk this path together. Because none of us are perfect. God is still transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, 
and so we continue to, to look forward to that and, and to do that together. All right, um, all that being said, let's dive into this passage. Um, if you would stand as we honor the reading of God's word, we are going to try to go through this quickly. We have a lot to cover this morning, um, and so hopefully we'll get it all get all in in fair time and clarity as well. All right, starting in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and we confess as a people, we confess as a church, Lord, that we are not perfect. God, that we desperately need for you to continue to do the work of salvation, to continue to do the work of, of justification in our lives. Father, we pray this morning. God, that your word would be clear, that it would be understandable, that we would apply it to our hearts, that we would go out changed, able to live lives that speak the gospel both in words and in action to those that we come into contact with. Lord, may we seek you first in all that we do, including this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me for a moment. This is a difficult passage um, for a number number of reasons. But one of the reasons that it is so difficult is because James seems to be saying here something that so goes against the grain of everything that we see in the rest of the New Testament and everything that we tend to hold on to as Southern Baptists. Because James presents here seemingly a case that works are a vital part of your salvation. In fact, he just out and out says it, doesn't he? says that faith alone is not enough. But as we go through this morning, I hope that we can unpack some truths so that we can see that James is not flying in the face of everything else that we hold on to. He's not flying in the face of the writings of the rest of Scripture, but rather he is joining alongside them, and he's just fighting a different opponent, okay? He's just fighting a different opponent. 
one of the passages that we're going we're gonna to contrast and look at with James and hopefully eventually get together is Romans 4. Um, and so if you want to turn to Romans 4, feel free to do that. Um, I just want to read a part of that this morning um, just to give you some context because I want you to see the I want you to see the potential conflict, and then I want you to hopefully understand as we unpack that how that conflict really doesn't exist. He starts off in 4, Romans 4, verse 1. This is Paul writing. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who has works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who is justified, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this idea that those who believe in him are justified. Go If you flip over to five, in the rest of chapter four, Paul continues to lay out this Um, case that our salvation is through faith alone and he concludes there in five or really continues on there in five to say therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ so again this idea that our salvation is based on our faith not on our works flip over Galatians if you have if you want to you can flip over to Galatians he again presents this argument he again presents this argument that, uh, that it is faith, not works, that justify us. There in verse, we'll do three, uh, or sorry, chapter three, verse one. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed if it, if it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul, in both Romans and in Galatians, uses Abraham and the story of Abraham to show us and to drive home the point that it is by faith that we are saved not by works. We can't do enough to earn our salvation. That is the belief system of so many other religions. It's the belief system of so many who even sit in our own congregations this morning across the world as they sit in churches that somehow they can do enough, they can check enough things off a list so as to earn their salvation. But, Jane, or, but Paul comes to this and says, no, 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 that's not at all what is true. But rather, it is by faith that we are saved. And yet here in James, at the end of chap- last half of chapter 2, we seemingly have a contrast. We seemingly have conflict between Paul and James. That, as James says, no, you must have works 
there. So what's going on? What's going on here? Because we know that Scripture does not contradict itself. We know that Scripture does not speak against itself. And so there must be some sort of reconciliation here. There must be something here that we are missing just in a cursory reading of this. And the problem here, though, is that we tend to just stop there. And we say, you know what, I don't understand this. This is too deep for me. I don't understand how to reconcile these two things, and so I'm just not going to read this passage of James. And then you begin to read James, and you go, you know what, I don't really like that either, so I'm not going to read that. And you know what, you know what, just forget James. Like, just, I'm done with him. Like, he's just weird, he's out there, he's difficult to understand. I'm done with the book of James. And now you're on a slippery slope. Now you have discounted that passage of James, which has led you to discount the, passage, the book of James, and now you can begin to pick and choose what scripture you want to obey and what scripture you're like, I like that better, or I don't like that so much, so I'm good. And now you are, now you are in a dangerous place because no longer are you a disciple of Christ, but now you are a disciple of yeast, and you are picking and choosing what your religion is. You're picking and choosing what scripture you want to follow. One of our, our great fathers of America, Thomas Jefferson, was famous for this. Some of you may know that Jefferson would go through his Bible and literally cut out those scriptures, those verses that he didn't believe or that he didn't think helped the human cause. And so his Bible's like a third of the length of our Bible. That's not Christianity. That's not discipleship of Christ. That's discipleship of yourself. And so we can't come to these passages and say and throw our hands up and say, I don't understand it, forget it, I'm moving on, because that leads us to being able to say that in other places as well. And eventually we begin to justify not obeying direct commands of God because we're picking and choosing what we want and what we don't want. So it's important this morning that we sit down and we open this up and we begin to ask God to show us how do these two things go together. And so the first thing I want us to see is that Paul and James are both fighting for the gospel, okay? Romans 4, Galatians, James 2 are all defending the gospel against those who would attack it, those who would water it down and lessen it from what it is. But they are fighting two different opponents. Okay, we understand this. If you're a boxer, yes, I'm using another sports analogy. If you're a boxer and you're fighting a right-handed fighter, you train a certain way. But every so often, you come across a southpaw. You come across a left-handed fighter. And what does that cause you to do? It must cause you to train differently because he is going to fight differently. He's going to come at you from an angle that you have not seen before. And so James and Paul are both defending the gospel, but they are doing so against different opponents, and therefore they must approach the defense of the gospel in different ways. Hopefully everyone's following me so far, okay? Because here's where it gets real fun, all right? So Paul is fighting against legalism. Paul is looking at those that are attacking the church at a false doctrine called legalism. And what legalism says is that you have faith plus. You have grace plus. That yes, it's good that you believe in Jesus Christ and that you you pray the prayer and you do all this, but there is also this checklist of things that you must do in order to tilt 
the balance in your favor, in order to tilt the scales in your favor so that you may find justification. And that's a word, by the way, that we need to define really quick. I'm going to throw it around a lot this morning. Justification is right standing, okay? It is right standing before the Lord. We know that as sinners, as people that have screwed up, that our relationship with Christ, with God, our creator, is broken, and that without the blood of Christ, without grace, without faith, that we can never be in right relationship with him again. We can never be justified again. But these people that are are legalists are saying that, yes, grace and faith are part of it, but there are other things that you must do to bestow more grace upon yourself that you may even more earn your way into heaven, that you may make yourself safe. And the Jews of this time, the early church, they were dealing with a whole host of issues. Most had to deal with the Jewish law. Most of these issues, most of this checklist that they were given by these people that were preaching a false gospel, this checklist came from the previous Old Testament law. But we too have people that are legalists in our own church. And I'm using that universally, but in the group this size, I guarantee you that there's some of us there that probably fall into this camp as well. But we say, yes, grace and faith are important, but man, if you don't make it to Sunday school every single morning, then your, your salvation is in serious question, my friend. If you don't wake up and do a quiet time every single morning and spend exactly 32 minutes reading the Word, 7 minutes contemplating the Word, and then 18 more minutes praying the Word, and I mean to the second, then your faith, your salvation is in serious question. If you don't give to the penny, 10% of your tithe, or 10% of your income as tithe, then your salvation is in question. But don't give a penny over, because that would be overdoing it, okay? Don't, don't give more than 10%, because that would not be biblical. Okay, this is where I fear that I'm being recorded, and someone's going to say, use just that snippet of don't, don't give more, and they're going to be, see, pastor said, okay? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So there's this list, this checklist of things that we must do in order to somehow earn further grace. Even other sister denominations have this. They have this idea that there is more beyond grace and faith, that there is a list of actions that you must accomplish in your lifetime in order to earn further grace as if something that you could do would be worthy before him to earn salvation. And that's just not what we see. That's just not what we see in Scripture. It's not what we see in the teachings of Christ. It's not what we see in the rest of Scripture. It is just false. It is just wrong. And Paul sees this in the church, and he is speaking out against that legalism. In fact, he proclaims over and over, we are free in Christ. We don't have that list of things. But we are saved by grace and by faith alone. James, on the other hand, is approaching a different enemy. James, what he is seeing, is a head knowledge that is never impacting the rest of someone's life. James is seeing people in his congregation who say, Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is real. Yes, I believe that he is the Son of God. Sure, he died on the cross. Sure, that was, that's how I need to be saved. But they are never allowing that head knowledge, that education that they have received, to infiltrate their life. 
they're never allowing it to manifest itself. And they say, oh, I can think those things, I can believe those things, but it doesn't have to change the way I live my life. And as an American culture, we see this all the time. We see people that say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but we never, ever see any fruit in their life. You know people like this. You know people that you come into contact and you say, hey, you know, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, yes, I go to church. Oh, what's the name of the church? Uh, First Baptist Union. Oh, really? Who's the pastor there? I think we've moved on from the last guy. I don't really remember. Oh, really? Tell me a little bit about your story. How did God save you? How did you come to know Christ? Well, I think it happened back when I was two, and I, and you never get the rest of that story. But they claim to be a Christian, but nothing in their life speaks to that change that has happened inside of them. And James says, that is not real faith. And the reality is, is that we see this in a little closer to home, okay? Because we all know people like that, we see that. But we see this closer to home, too. We see people in our congregation, all over the United States, all over the world, They've grown up since they were little kids. And they've done all they've done all the right things. They've said all the right words. They've prayed all the right prayers. We've dunked them like an Oreo. Okay? And that's about as meaningful as it gets. We've dunked them like an Oreo. And they've continued to come to church. They're involved in an activity here or there. But the reality is, is that they have a head knowledge and everything they do is not driven by a change that happened inside of them. It's not driven by a love for God. It's not driven by a friendship and a relationship with God. But everything they do comes out of an expectation that man has placed on them. It comes out of an expectation of a parent or a grandparent that you go to church on Sunday. It comes out of an expectation of a Sunday school teacher that you need to pray this prayer and then be baptized. It comes out of an expectation that was placed on them, and they are only trying to justify, we are only trying to justify ourselves in the eyes of another person to gain our own pride, to gain our own selfish desires, to make ourselves feel safe, but there's never been something in our lives where we have trusted God with everything we are, we've confessed our sin, repented of it, made Him Lord of our lives, and then allowed Him to transform us so that we come to the point where we love him and just like we are friends that we do things not because we have to but because we want to so we do things we have those actions we have those works in our lives that come out of a desire for god not out of some sense of duty or expectation that someone else has put on us so they're fighting two different opponents and they're approaching it from two different angles and that's why we see this little bit of difference here the other thing that can confuse us with this passage, and I'm really going to have to start booking, but the other thing that can confuse us with this passage is that both of them use Abraham as their example. And so I want you to see here something. This is Paul and James continues. But they both use Abraham as an example, but they are using two different parts of Abraham's life. Paul is predominantly using 
Genesis chapter 15. We don't have time to turn back there, but feel free to do that in your own time. Genesis chapter 15 is what Paul is primarily focused on. He is focused on that moment when God creates the covenant with Abraham and says that he will be his God and lays out the parameters of all that entails and all that Abraham is going to have to do. And Abraham believes God. Abraham puts his faith and trust in God. And that is what Paul is pointing to. Paul is pointing to that initial point of belief. And that is true in the lives of every believer. We have that moment, okay? Most of us can point to that moment when we say, it was at that point in my life when God called me out and he laid out before me the gift of salvation that he had for me and I put my faith and trust in him and I made him Lord of my life. That is what Paul is focused on. And that, indeed, only happens through faith. That only happens by the grace of God. And here's the great thing. Look at James 1, 18, or sorry, 16 through 18 with me real quick. I want you to see something. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is the verse I really want us to focus on, 18. Of his own will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth, the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of creation. James agrees with Paul. That initial point of justification is a work of grace that is done by God. James does not disagree with that. But James is not looking in chapter 2 at that initial point. James is looking at the process that happens in our lives after we are saved. He is looking at how God, once we are saved, begins to work in us in this process of molding us into the image of Christ, into a holy relationship with Him. And specifically at the day of judgment and what that's going to look like. And James is making the case That as that happens, the evidence of that faith that happened initially and of the faith that is transforming us, the grace that is transforming us, the evidence of that is in our works. Stephen says there in 22 of of chapter 2 that faith was active with the works. You look there, you see that faith was active along with his, Moses' works, and that faith was completed by works. So we see that there, that these works that happen, these works of grace, these works of faith in our lives are accomplished because of the faith that happened back there. And they are the evidence of that. And if there is no evidence, then we must question the faith. It's just like a court case. If you say that someone is guilty, but you can produce no evidence, then you can no longer call that person guilty. You can no longer make that accusation can no longer make that charge so too if you have say you have faith if you say you are a believer of christ but as you look back on your life you can never point to different fruit to different evidences of that faith being active in your life producing things that have happened then you must begin to question your faith and what it really is and that for us is scary hard question to ask. It's a hard mirror to look into. 
It doesn't mean, and, and let me say this. This does not mean that we don't screw up. We still screw up as believers. It does not mean that every work we do is perfect. That's not going to be the case. It means that we're going to look back at our life and say, God called me to do this, and he accomplished it through me by faith and grace. And that is evidence of him working in me. I am not the same person today that I was on the day that I was saved because he is continually working in me and through me. All right. Two, that's that's big. And I want you to see something real quick in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We're, we're running this morning all over the place. And I'm, we're going to get through it all, I promise. Maybe not in time for the race, but, you know. All right, 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This sounds exactly like Paul. So far, this is totally Romans and Galatians. We're right there. It's... So, back, it says, not by your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, we're all clicking along here. But then we get to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So even Paul says here, Absolutely, your salvation, that point of justification is absolutely grace, something done by God, not by you, in your life, through faith. But that produces and that should cause you to walk in good works that come out of a love and a desire for God and nothing else. So Paul supports James here. So we see there's no conflict here. They're fighting two different battles for the same gospel, they support one another. They come together on these issues. And so we must accept both of them and understand both of them. Okay, I may have lost you somewhere along the way. I want you to know two truths. Two truths that we see from Paul and James both. Okay? These are the things that you need to focus on. The rest of it you can go, okay, Brian's getting a little academic on me. I'm just going to kind of roll my eyes for a moment. All right, two truths. One, we are saved by faith. Paul, James, both agree on that. No questions, no discussion. We're saved by faith. Grace is involved because God does that initial act of justification. Okay? That's truth number one. Truth number two, the evidence of our faith is godly works. If you cannot point back at your life and show how you have been changed from the day you were saved to today, if you cannot point to certain things that God has done through you, works that were done by faith, then you have no faith, my friend. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. We need to turn there real quick. I want you to see how Christ puts this. He is talking about false prophets, but the same applies to us. Chapter 7, 15 through 20. Beware of, the, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer, of course, is no. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. No, friend, we cannot look into the heart of someone and truly know whether they're saved or not. We're not capable of that. But... Jesus makes it clear that if you do not have things in your life that evidence are evidences of your faith, that your faith 
Jesus today. That your faith is not a faith that leads to salvation. Okay. Now let's get into the passage. You ready for the sermon to start? Let's go. All right. Back to 14. All right. Now that we've seen that Paul and James are not really contrasting, but they are, in fact, supporting one another, so let's go to James. James makes it clear that if our works are not evidence of our faith, then our faith is dead. There in 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone comes and says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. The expectation of that question is no. That faith cannot save him. And then he gives this example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he gives this example. He says, if you see a brother or sister in Christ, and that brother and sister is in need, they have to have food for that day, they have to have clothing, and you do the equivalent. This is That would have been a common go and be fed and be warm. That would have been a common farewell. Basically, you are saying to them, hey, I see you're in need, but you have a great day. I'll talk to you later. Then the faith that leads to salvation is not in you, my friend. And I would go so far as if you come into contact with someone that you know needs the gospel and God throws that door open and you do not feel inside of you the urge now, you may absolutely end up botching this, and that's by, by disobeying. But if you do not feel an urge, if you do not feel the presence in you that you need to share, then you must question if the faith that leads to salvation is in you. Because we should have a desire to share the gospel with those that need it. We disobey that command. We disobey that urge many times, but, but it should live inside of us. You think James is being harsh here? Let's turn over to 1 John. Everybody loves John. John's the great guy. You want to feel better about yourself? Go read John. Except for that John says something interesting. Chapter 3, verse. I'm going to start in 16. He says, By this we know love, that he, he Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him how does the love god's love abide in him does that sound familiar if you see a brother in need and you have the means to help him and you do not do it the love of god does not abide in you that oh, that that drove me to my knees this week that hammers at home little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth. Verse 18 there in 1 John chapter 3. We cannot just say with our lips, we cannot just have a head knowledge that Christ is the way of salvation. We must act upon that which has done been done inside of us. We must live out what has been done in us. That act of salvation. All right. James goes on here. We'll cover this quickly. He goes on there in verse 19 to attack these people that said it's all a head knowledge. He says, you believe that God is one, great. So do the demons. The demons believe that God is God. They believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. They believe that he, they know why he died on the cross. They know what his resurrection means for them. And yet 
all of that knowledge, all of that education in their mind does not bear out in their actions, and therefore it means nothing to them. So is the case. If you can have all the head knowledge in the world, but if you are not seeing fruit in your life, then you must look in the mirror and ask God to open your heart and reveal where you are at. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We must look at ourselves. We must ask those questions. We must understand what should come out of us so that we must under, that we may understand what is inside of us. And then, of course, James, as he normally does, ends with examples. He ends with the example of Abraham that we see in there in chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham have that moment of belief, that moment of justification that is then later evidenced in Genesis 22 as he sacrifices that which is most precious to him as he takes to the altar his one and only son that was part of the covenant in the first place, knowing that God could do whatever God wanted to do. And that God would keep his promise in the long run. He gives us the example of Rahab. You may not know as much about Rahab. Rahab was not a Jew. She lived in Jericho before they came in and overtook it. And she took and hid Jewish spies, Israelite spies, that they may see the town, see its weaknesses, and then at the risk of her own life and the lives of those that lived with her, she hid them and then she made sure they got out safely before anyone could find them. And we know because of that, that at some point Rahab heard of the God of Israel and she placed her faith and her trust in God. And then we get to see the evidence later as God uses her faith and her trust in him to perform his will. I, we're not going to spend any time on this, but I want you to notice one quick thing. Both of these require sacrifice. And many times, God calls us to do things that require us to sacrifice. Not to give, but to sacrifice. And many times, that is the work of faith in us. That is the evidence of who we believe in. All right. We've covered a lot of ground today. So now we have to go back and we have to review our work. We have to ask some tough questions this morning. What drives you to do what you do? Is it expectations set upon you by other people so that you may meet those expectations? So that you may say, I accomplished something and I've earned something? Or is it, are you driven by a desire and a love for God that has been placed inside of you at that moment of salvation? Some of you this morning, we've talked about justification, we've talked about that initial point of salvation, we've talked about being saved, and all of that means nothing to you. You're just like, I don't, I don't, I've never done that. I've never experienced that. This morning, today can be the day of salvation. This morning, you have an opportunity. You have screwed up in your life. We all have. The Bible makes that clear. But God offers a gift. He says, if you will confess your sins, say that you've done them, repent, say, I don't want to be that person, turn away, stop doing those things, and make him Lord of your life. Put your faith and trust in him, that you will be saved. You won't have to face the consequences of those dumb decisions. You won't have to face the consequences of sin, which we know are hell and death. You won't have to fear death anymore. And today can be the day that you make that decision. Another question, what does your faith produce? 
Has it produced works that are glorified before man, that are out, that are based out of some duty? Or has it produced genuine change in you as you are made to look more like Christ? Can you say that you're different today than you were when you were saved? Because God has matured you and he's grown you. I'm not asking you this morning to question your faith if you are truly a believer. I know that that Satan uses that as a tool and as a temptation. But I am asking you, God may be touching on your heart and convicting you this morning because you know that you know that you've been wearing a mask. That you're not his. That you've never actually had that moment where you trusted in him. That your life is not driven by your desire for him. But rather, everything you've done in your life that seeks to be in a Christian has been done because of an expectation that you're trying to meet for other people. This morning, today can be the day of salvation for you as well. You can take off that mask and you can say, today I want to stop faking it and I want to come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to have a relationship with Him. And then all of those other things will follow. The question is, is your faith alive? Many of you here are believers, and you're like me. You're being convicted. You've, you've heard this message, and the conviction comes because you know there are things in your life that you have taken on because of yourself, that you've taken on because of your own desires. There are things that you don't do because you just don't feel like it, even though God is convicting you and touching you and asking you to do those things. God is asking you to make sacrifices. God is asking you to have evidence in your life of what he has done for you. Will you allow him to do that? Will you offer your life as a sacrifice and make that happen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. I don't know what God is asking you to do this morning. I don't know what response he is prompting you to have this morning. But don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Don't be like the foolish man who looked in the mirror and walked away and said, that's not for me. Don't be like Jefferson who would rip out parts of the Bible because he didn't like what it said. But let it speak to you this morning. They're going to play. You respond. Let me pray for us first. Father, we come before you this morning. God, we have, God, we have covered a lot of ground. And God, we have dealt with a heavy chapter. We've helped dealt with a heavy passage that asked us to look in the mirror of Scripture and to look at things that are unsightly, to look at things that we want to bury, to look at things that we don't want to know the answer to. And you are calling us to respond this morning. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray for individuals in this congregation that you are touching their hearts. You're piercing their hearts this morning that they would respond, that they wouldn't wait, they wouldn't say, oh, I'll deal with it tomorrow. But God, that we as a church would humble ourselves and come to you in prayer, come to you asking for grace. May we be that people, we pray this in your name. Amen.